Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. Welcome to Tell Me Everything. Bringing good trouble to the right-wing bubble here on Sirius XM Progress 127. So glad to be with you this evening. Chris Hauselt's our amazing executive producer, keeping this train on the tracks out of the South Carolina Bureau, the mighty and brilliant Thea Harper. Producing from Brooklyn, I come to you from Manhattan. It is great to be with you on this, the 10th of October. For the next three hours, we're coming at you with a broad array of guests. And our number will be 866-997-4748. There is so much to get to, so much to cover, so much to discuss. 866-997-GRIT is our number. Today is the birthday of Thelonious Monk and Peter Coyote and friend of the show Ben Vereen and Tanya Tucker. And Gavin Newsom. Let's. Oh, and and uh, David Lee Roth, of course, and Julia Sweeney, and uh, and uh, 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 I mentioned Ben Vereen. Yeah, uh, and Ed Wood would have been ninety nine years old today, and would probably make a bad movie out of it. Fifty years ago today, Vice President of the U.S. Spiro Agnew resigned after being charged with evasion of federal income tax. Because you're allowed to do that with corrupt national elected officials. There's so much going on in the world today. And let's do a show. Uh, Donald Trump's former CFO, Alan Weisselberg, testified today under oath in Donald Trump's civil fraud trial that he knew Trump's apartment size was illegally inflated in order for Trump to commit fraud. In other words, Trump lies about size and even the help knows it. Hughes Van Ellis, one of the last known survivors of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre, has died. He was 102 years old. In the hours after shifting to an independent presidential campaign, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s super PAC has pulled in $11 million in donations. Is this really bad news for Joe Biden, as everyone thought? Or is this turning into bad news for Donald Trump, who went from talking up Robert Kennedy to now bad-mouthing him in terror. And George Santos, everyone's favorite first-term Republican congressman, has been charged with 10 new felony counts that accuse him of schemes, including stealing the identities and the credit cards of donors to his campaign. Oh, man, can you imagine if that's true? That'll totally ruin my opinion of this guy. And uh, hello to all of our daywalkers, people who... I, more than half our audience doesn't listen live, but listens the next day on the SiriusXM app, on demand, and on the John Fugelsang podcast. We love y'all. We read your messages on the air, too. And you guys, if you're ever bored at night, come on, there's not that much good on TV. Y'all could call us sometime as well. Okay, so it was in the 1940s after the Holocaust, and the UN had this idea of creating two states in the Middle East, one Jewish 
as reparations for the horrors of the Third Reich and one Arab state. And the state of Israel was established and won international recognition. The Arab state didn't. And now the region has been fighting with itself for decades, probably most of your lifetime. It sure has been for all of mine. And the main issue is that Palestinians and Israelis both want the same land. Christians, Jews, and Muslims all hold different parts of that land as sacred. Now, many more Palestinians than Israelis have been killed in this conflict. I'm going to say that again because it's a fact. Many more Palestinians than Israelis have been killed in this conflict. And we will criticize the Israel policy towards Palestine all day. We will criticize the corruption of the Netanyahu regime all day. None of that changes the fact that Hamas is a terrorist group. And Hamas wants one thing above everything else, to eradicate Jewish people. And today, Joe Biden gave an address that was carried live by all the big news networks. And it was probably the most powerful statement of American support for the state of Israel by a U.S. president since Harry Truman first recognized Israel back in 1948. Israel is still reeling from probably the worst crisis in its history. And many folks are still in shock and grieving and feeling horrified. And of course... Civilians in Palestine are horrified as well. The Israel Defense Forces said they regained control over the border with the Gaza Strip early today, while having an even more intense retaliation stepping up on rocket attacks on Gaza. And of course, they are blockading any food or fuel from getting in there. They have destroyed mosques, university buildings, apartment towers, offices. This weekend's atrocities by Hamas and most recent count have cost Israel more than 1,000 lives, 2,600 are wounded. In Gaza, almost 1,000 are dead and another 4,600 are wounded after the airstrikes. The missile volleys have been flying back and forth all day between Gaza City and Israel. Over 150 Israelis have been taken captive by Hamas. And we're now in the fourth day of Israel carrying out massive airstrikes in Gaza in retaliation for, again, the insanely evil an evilly insane surprise attack on Saturday by the Palestinian militants. It is really important to have compassion for the Palestinian people. It is really important to hate these bloodthirsty monsters in Hamas. And, you know, you think this is the time when the world needs to come together in solidarity behind victims. But it turns out that only happens when there's been a terrorist attack and a Republican president is in office. If a Democratic president is in office during a terrorist attack, then by all means, whether it's Benghazi or this weekend, the suffering and the torture must be exploited to hurt that Democratic president. Today, Joe Biden decried the Hamas attack as an act of sheer evil and confirmed, yes, American hostages are among those taken in the assault. In his address, this is clip A1, Joe Biden affirms the partnership and support for Israel and mourns the vicious actions of Hamas. So in this moment, we must be crystal clear. We stand with Israel. We stand with Israel. And we will make sure Israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens, defend itself, and respond to this attack. There's no justification for terrorism. There's no excuse Hamas does not stand for the Palestinian people's right to dignity and self-determination. Its stated purpose is the annihilation of the state of Israel and the murder of Jewish people. They use Palestinian civilians as human shields. Hamas offers nothing but terror and bloodshed with no regard 
to who pays the price. The loss of innocent life is heartbreaking. Like every nation in the world, Israel has the right to respond, indeed has a duty to respond to these vicious attacks. There's no ambiguity there, right? No equivocation, no both sides-ism. I, I mean, I applaud him for calling out the truth that Hamas does not care about the people of Palestine, because if they did, they would not have carried out this atrocity, which will create greater suffering in Palestine. They pulled a bin Laden. They're trying to draw the West into a deeper war. And it worked when bin Laden did it. And Bush, being the greedy idiot that he was, took us into that unholy conflict in Iraq. So Joe Biden's, you know, trying to support Israel's security. He's also trying to minimize harm to innocent Palestinians because that doesn't make it better for anyone. And most importantly, and we have to mention this, he's trying to keep this war from turning into a wider war involving Lebanon, involving Iran. And Biden also confirmed today that at least 14 Americans are among the dead. And an undisclosed number of Americans have been taken hostage and moved to Gaza. In this clip, Biden acknowledges that Americans are being held captive and he announced steps to reinforce the region against further action from neighboring states. We now know that American citizens are among those being held by Hamas. I've directed my team to share intelligence and deploy additional experts from across the United States government to consult with and advise Israeli counterparts on hostage recovery recovery efforts. Because as president, I have no higher priority than the safety of Americans being held hostage around the world. The United States has also enhanced our military force posture in the region to strengthen our deterrence. The Department of Defense has moved the USS Gerald R. Ford Carrier Strike Group to the Eastern Mediterranean and bolstered our fighter aircraft presence. And we stand ready to move in additional assets as needed. Let me say again to any country, any organization, anyone thinking of taking advantage of this situation, I have one word. Don't. Don't. Our hearts may be broken, but our resolve is clear. God, you know, I don't say it enough. It's nice having a sane person who's not a narcissistic twit in the White House. Of course, people will be trying to take advantage of this from the Ayatollahs to Putin to Netanyahu to back here at home. Let's talk about it. We are leaderless in the House. There is paralysis in the Senate. There's no one running the Navy. There's no ambassador to Israel. I mean, this this war is coming at a time when we are facing a first in our history. No speaker of the House. So we can't appropriate funds. And over in the Senate, the nonsense of Senator Tommy Tuberville, who believes women in the armed forces should not have control of their own bodies, has left hundreds of key military positions unfilled. And the Senate has still not confirmed Biden's nominee for ambassador to Israel. So, yeah, uh, America is weaker than it should be right now. And it's because of Republicans. Republicans are in chaos. So what are they going to do? Get their shit together? No. They're going to lie and try to blame this on Biden. It takes a special kind of unholy imbecile to do this. But they did it with Benghazi. When the terrorist attack happened on September 11, 2012, first they tried to blame Susan Rice. Then they tried to blame it on Barack Obama. Then they tried to blame it on Hillary Clinton. Four years later, at no point did Republicans ever get around to blaming the actual terrorists. Sort of like blaming Joe Biden or NATO 
for Vladimir Putin's unholy campaign of genocide against his smaller neighbor. So the Republicans are trying to link Biden's release of $6 billion of frozen Iranian money as part of a prisoner swap earlier this month to the terrorist attack we saw over the weekend. And they're actually saying that Biden funded the attack with the $6 billion of our money he gave Iran. And that this money that Joe Biden gave from our tax dollars to Iran is what totally black and white funded Hamas attack. Mike Lawler, Kevin McCarthy, they've all accused Biden of at least some responsibility because Iran got $6 billion in unfrozen funds as part of a prisoner deal. And they're accusing Biden of incentivizing hostage taking and making Iran bolder. Here's Senator Tim Scott, who will never be president, giving CNN a taste of the GOP talking point about Joe Biden and the magic $6 billion. Give a good listen to this, because every word of it is an ugly lie, and we'll take apart why afterwards. We should look back at the breadcrumbs that lead back to the hostage negotiation that freed $6 billion. And what did Tehran say about the $6 billion? We will use it in any way we like. What did Hamas say to uh, Iran? They said, thank you. What if we discovered that the negotiation and the planning of this attack was Iran working with Hamas? That is clear cookie crumbs, breadcrumbs evidence from my perspective that's, that doesn't suggest it reinforces the fact that Iran is behind these attacks, allowing $6 billion, increasing the price on an American life and creating a market for hostage taking. It's just devastating. Zero evidence, you godless tap dancing Confederate puppet. Zero evidence. Think about this, folks. The money was Iranian, not American. And the money came from oil sales to South Korea that were authorized by, wait for it, wait for it, Donald Trump. Yeah, Donald Trump authorized the Iranian oil sales to South Korea. And it's being held in a Qatari bank. It's available only for humanitarian goods. And are you ready? Iran has used zero dollars. Zero. But of course, money's fungible, right? Who got the memo to start saying fungible? Chris brought this up earlier today, and it's kind of brilliant. They're all just saying, oh, it's fungible, it's fungible, like they learned what an NFT stood for. That's their new favorite word. So Iran could easily shift the funds to weaponry while they were waiting for the money in their budget, but not, not, not true. Reuters reported today that Hamas's plot was two years in the making. Okay, and it was a pretty sophisticated operation if you actually read what they did. You think Hamas began plotting this? Last month, when the deal went through, because they thought they'd have some money in the end of the month. And again, every one of these people should be asked, would you rather those five Americans were still rotting in an Iranian prison? Not one cent has been spent from that account. And when any money is spent from that account, it can only be used for medical supplies, for food, for medicine. And our Treasury Department determines what money gets released for what. But they don't care. Ron DeSantis said, Iran has helped fund this war against Israel and Joe Biden's policies have gone easy on Iran, have helped fill their coffers. That doughy mediocrity. It's Iran's money. It's their money. Donald Trump approved the oil sales. Chris Christie, within hours of the attack, blamed Joe Biden. He said this terrorism is funded by Biden's idiotic release of six billion to the Iranians. Journalists, the question is for Chris Christie and all of these godless rat bastards, should those five Americans have been left to rot in Iranian cages? Trump is bragging about this. He's they didn't have that level of aggression with me. They didn't have it. This would have never happened with me either. Now, Donald Trump, it wouldn't have happened with you because you were a puppet of all parties involved. Trump is using this conflict to 
get racists more scared about immigration. And he has now promised to reimpose his illegal, unconstitutional, racist, unchristian travel ban on people coming in from predominantly Muslim countries. They're all exploiting it. Their party is in chaos. We don't have a speaker of the house. We don't have an ambassador to Israel. And they're trying to cover for it by blaming Joe Biden. Trump just said the Biden administration had allowed tens of thousands of probable terrorists into this country. That is a lie. And Donald Trump, because he is a fat coward, will never sit down for an interview with anyone who will ask him a question about this. No American president caused Hamas's assault across the Gaza border. No American president. And here's the real thing to remember when this gets you crazy. Nobody in Israel who's grieving and living in fear right now, not one of them is blaming Biden. No government officials, no journalists, no newspaper editorials, no headlines. No one in Israel is blaming Biden. Only these motherless right-wing cowards over here. In 2011, Israel did a prisoner swap with Hamas. They sent over 1,000 Hamas prisoners for one Israeli soldier. And again, the question that we ask is, you know, it's not about how much money has been released to Iran for humanitarian purposes, because not a dollar of that money has been spent yet. It's how releasing $6 billion for humanitarian purposes less than a month ago could have funded Hamas's attack. This was thousands of rockets. They've been stockpiling this for years. Here's the deal, friends. You ready? This attack is being used by Putin to distract from his genocidal invasion. It's being used by Netanyahu to distract from his historic corruption. It's being used by Donald Trump to distract from his seven criminal trials with 91 charges and four jurisdictions. This attack is being used by the Republican Party to distract from their chaos and their inability to govern. Trump's saying he brought peace to the Middle East. And people who say that are, I don't know, are they lying? Are they dumb or are they both? Trump made the Middle East less safe, and it's been proven this week. We had a peace deal with Iran. He tore it up. He assassinated an Iranian general. I guess he thought they wouldn't mind. Less than four months into his term, this coup-attempting game show host was bragging to the Russian foreign minister and the ambassador, Kislyak, in the Oval Office about how his briefings were so great, and as proof, he offered them details about a secret Israeli intelligence operation into Syria. Have you ever heard a Republican mad that Donald Trump was giving away Israel intelligence secrets? To the Russians. Well, Israel was mad about it. They were furious. They had to assume their local source for the information had been compromised or killed. Donald Trump's first overseas trip as president was to the terrorist state of Saudi Arabia, where his son-in-law received $2 billion. Oh, but he had a peace deal, the Abraham Accords. Heard that all day, right? Donald Trump brought peace there, except it wasn't a peace deal. That was between Israel, Bahrain, and the United Arab Emirates, three countries that are not at war. You can't make a peace deal between countries that aren't at war. It was a business deal opening flights to send tourists to each other for the first time. All three of those countries are small, wealthy partners of America that oppose Iran. And Donald Trump lied about the Abraham Accords. He said this is the dawn of a new Middle East. Look, anything that brings more peace is positive. Okay, and it could provide a stepping stone for a wider deal between the Arab nations and Israel, which we all hope for, which is what the Biden administration has been trying to do with Saudi Arabia, which is now probably dead in the water. But Trump gave Israel stuff, whatever they wanted, without getting anything in return. He threw America's weight behind Netanyahu. He helped ignore the Palestinian situation. Trump cut 25 million in American support for Palestinian hospitals. Jared Kushner put out his peace plan, but it was just giving Israel what it wants and ignoring the Palestinian concerns. They reduced support for the Palestinians. They ignored their request for statehood. And 
we now know those douchebags in Hamas were planning this for a very long time. When Trump officially recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital and moved our embassy there, that broke our policy since the Camp David Accords because that city is disputed. Palestine claims their capital is in East Jerusalem. They kept poking the hornet's nest as hard as they could. Clinton tried to have a peace deal. Bush and Obama, honestly, they punted on it. Obama did authorize a $38 billion package of military aid to Israel, the biggest in history. And then in 2018, Trump all on his own broke the Iran nuclear deal, which many countries worked on. The Pentagon and American intelligence said Iran was following, but it let Iran out of all their nuclear restrictions in exchange for nothing. So now they can process uranium and build a bomb. And then, of course, in 2020, Trump ordered the assassination of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard General Qasem Soleimani, the first direct American attack on a foreign military commander since World War II. Now, Soleimani was a bad guy, had a lot of blood on his hands. But then what happened after that? The Islamic Republic had their first ever open attack on American forces and fired missiles at a U.S. base in Iraq and injured over 100 people. Remember when Trump assassinated him? We were told Iran would be too scared to help the terrorists again. Killing Soleimani made no one in Israel safer, made no one in America safer. And of course, his approach to Syria completely screwed over our Kurdish partners and left them to be slaughtered. So Biden's been playing this hand that Trump left him, which has been weakened. He's had airstrikes on the Iraq-Syria border. He's trying to get Iran to agree to a new deal for nukes, which will never happen because after Donald Trump, what foreign country would ever think America will honor any treaty they made? We'll be playing more of Biden's speech tonight. But MAGA's lie about the $6 billion, while they're ignoring the fact that Trump stole hundreds of classified documents, <laughs> it shows how little they care. And again, it was Trump who gave Iran a waiver in 2018 so they could sell $6 billion in oil to South Korea. Bring that up to your racist uncle when he brings it up. <sighs> so what's next? Well... Given China's attitude towards Taiwan, what Russia's doing towards Ukraine, what Hamas is doing towards Israel, this whole world could be completely out of control. And that's why America and other countries that are democracies are needed. We have to respond. We have to try to provide expertise. We have to try to calm things and not pour gasoline on it. And somebody in the Republican Party has to tell Tommy Tuberville to sit the hell down because his nonsense will no longer be tolerated. We want to know what you think. We're at 866-997-4748. We will be right back. This is Sirius XM Progress. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. 
Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you do. Welcome back. Allow me to read a brief excerpt of our next guest's amazing book. To be sure, the world has entered a new stage, threatening the very survival of humanity and all life species because of runaway climate change and endless militarism in the nuclear age. Both climate change and war now threaten extinction. Moreover, other threats in the DNA of our economic system multiply the extinction perils. The drive for endless profits and production is depleting scarce vital resources and extinguishing thousands of life species in an unprecedented existential crisis of biodiversity. The same forces help drive global pandemics such as COVID-19, which is also a global existential risk. These once unbelievable perils are a creation of our own hands and of the leaders and systems we are taught to cherish. The new book, Dying for Capitalism, analyzes the triangle of extinction that links capitalism, environmental destruction, and militarism as a system that makes a few people rich but cannot sustain life on this earth. It is about one of the greatest crises the world has ever faced. Charles Derber is co-author and professor of sociology at Boston College. He's written over 26 books on politics, democracy, corporations, fascism, climate change, war, and social change. His books include The Pursuit of Attention and The Wilding of America. He writes for and has been reviewed in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Boston Globe. He and his co-author, Surin Mudalar, analyze how this extinction triangle has evolved historically, how its functioning across the world is integral to our world capitalist order, and how the United States has become the dominant extinction nation. And I was just saying to the professor in the break, it is the rare book that fills me with as much fear as it fills me with hope. It is a real pleasure to welcome Professor Charles Derber to SiriusXM. Thank you very much, Chris. I'm really glad you liked the book and I uh, look forward to the conversation with you about it. Oh, thank you. And I'm actually John. Chris is the producer oh, uh, okay. right now. Okay. He's the guy John, who annoyed you and called before, you. Actually. Yeah. Yes, sir, we have. Yeah, it's great yeah, to have you right. back, though. Thank um, you. I, I want to thank you. And boy, the, the raves for your book from Noam Chomsky, Medea Benjamin, Ralph Nader. Um, I, I, I have so much I want to unpack. I'm such a fan of your work. I want to begin by asking about the word extinction. I'm sure you've had some resistance to using this word, but this is a book about how we are dying literally from capitalism. And if we're going to survive as a species, we have to confront it. Can you explain for our listeners and unpack a bit uh, what is meant by the phrase, this triangle of extinction? Yeah. Well, of course, there's a lot of work on climate change right now because it's become so you know, visceral, the, the floods and hurricanes and um, disaster, weather disasters, the heat records. I mean, ordinary Americans, I think, for the first time, feel this as a real crisis, as something that um, is really meaningful. Of course, we have a party of climate denier, deniers in the Republican Party, so that um, makes the whole political aspect of it more difficult. But um, the I think what makes this book 
um, a little bit different than the most of the books on climate change is is like you say, it's putting the crisis of um, extinction, which people identify with um, climate change, the idea that this could be the end of the of life on the planet as we know it, and you know the climate changes have moved more quickly than the UN um, climate scientists who have been tracking this over the last 20 years have been predicting the um, ice melts in the Arctic and Antarctic, the ocean warming, all these things are making it more clear that we really are on the threshold of um, something very, very serious. Um, but the book argues that you, you you correctly say that the framing of the book is around the idea that there is this triangle of extinction threats, threats that imperil the existence of humanity. So if you imagine a triangle with capitalism at the top and a causal arrow going down to climate and environmental death on one side and going down the other side toward war in the nuclear age, uh, we yes. weapons of mass destruction, and then arrows going back and forth between climate change and militarism. Um, I think this is really important, particularly in the context of where I was just listening to your talk about the Iranian yes, please. Please. Um, Israel thing. And it's just clear we're at another precipice around the possibility of a potential Israeli, U.S., Iranian war, um, exactly. which could you know, absolutely lead possibly toward conflict with Russia beyond the um, current Ukrainian thing. So it's very important in thinking about the, you know, effort to try to um, save life on the planet to recognize that there are these intersecting systems that all are intertwined and sort of fuel each other. So, for example, one part of the triangle that I don't think is well understood at all is that climate change is a major um, source of war. I mean, it, it, you know, about 60% of the world's population lives near oceans and water. And as That's you get right. climate change and, and the water rises, people are pushed out of inhabitable land. That's you see it. this even in Florida and the, the floods, you know, the insurance companies are not. So Louisiana. people are in motion and it, um, the, the, the Pentagon itself has, which has to legally um, sort of enumerate the national security threats facing the United States, says that climate change is the single greatest threat to American national security. At the same time, it doesn't say the other part of that, which needs to be said, which is that the the Pentagon and war are themselves the biggest driver of climate change. The biggest single Correct. institutional emitter of carbon emissions is uh, the Pentagon, actually. I mean, the, the military is an incredibly toxic carbon producing uh, kind of institution because it you know, relies largely on air. And in general, if you look historically, the book has a histor historical frame as well as a current analysis. And you see that the rise of climate sort of capitalism really accelerated during periods of war. I mean, the, the, particularly the, the, the turn, you know, the economy could have developed on non-fossil based. In fact, in, in the 19th century, there were water-driven steam engines, which could have been as efficient as um, coal and, and um, you know, natural gas and carbon. Um, the and oil in the World War One and World War Two, there was a massive shift 
toward uh, oil because planes and military supplies all um, saw oil as the most um, you know fastest way to militarize and companies that are involved in the military industrial complex saw of course oil as super profitable so it's important in this triangle to recognize that climate change and militarism are you know jointly fueling each other and at the yes. same time both of them are being fueled by particularly by our kind of neoliberal or highly you know sort of um, market driven capitalism which um, I think probably your listeners, um, John, are familiar with some of the argument about why capitalism drives climate change. It's not of terribly course. difficult to understand, partly because of the enormous influence of what I call the carbon industrial complex, which is sort of the equivalent of the military industrial complex, the big oil companies, um, the big coal and other fossil fuel um, companies. So they have enormous um, financial you know, sort of leverage over the political actors in the United States and other Western countries. Um, and um, more generally, there are many other, we can get into this if you'd like to more in detail. There are just many systemic forces in our economy that independent of who's sitting in the White House or in Congress are driving toward, driving our economy toward um, Toward disaster environmentally, yes, which sir. includes not only climate change but biodiversity crisis, and um, you know, uh, pandemics are related to this as well. Um, so that's um, this has to do with, of course, pr the enormous appetite for profit and for expansion that is part of capitalism. And as you commodify everything for the market to be sold on the market, you you know, we're on a finite planet in a system that has insatiable infinite appetites for production and expansion and and mm -hmm. selling and mass commodities so on the so there's all kinds of elements and you know in a sense climate change is simply a huge negative externality of capitalism itself an externality is i think many of you have heard that phrase it's an a cost in a system which the producers in the system don't have to worry about. So when a, a, a company pollutes uh, downstream and doesn't have to pay for the pollution, it's producing a cost that's externalized to the people downstream who are going to pay that's the right. medical and other costs. Well, climate Always. change is sort of a systemic negative externality. The whole cost, the enormous cost of climate change uh, and you know the ultimate cost, which is survival, is in a sense economically simply a huge systemic negative externality. The cost of life and the survival of life is being externalized from the producers, the, the big companies and the wealthy people who are see a lot of money at stake. Um, they're, they're externalizing the cost to the entire rest of the world. So it's enormously important. The same causal factors are going on for many of the same reasons with war and militarism. Um, exactly. American militarism, if you wonder why we're, um, you know, as you were saying in your earlier program, we're probably moving toward you know, a, a, a conflict that could be extremely dangerous militarily with Iran. And um, that simply reflects, you know, the last um, 30 to 40 years of which um, the U.S. has seen 
Middle Eastern oil as central, not only for American own energy needs, but for its its allies' energy needs. And um, there's, again, there's just so many reasons that I'm sure you've, you've thought about, John, but probably came across in the book as you look through it, that, um, you know, when there's a lot of inequality economically in a system, there's enormous uh, political incentive to find enemies abroad as well as mm-hmm. at home, but abroad, who can basically unify and rally the country when, you know, there's extreme division and polarization. So if you're in a of course. kind of economic system like we are in, where, you know, CEOs are getting, you know, 30, 50, 100 times um, what ordinary workers are getting, and a very large number of workers are struggling and feeling, understandably feeling, um abandoned since we really do have two corporate parties in many ways that um you're going to see um a polarization which war is you know if you think back to 1984 you know there was the three minute hate which was the big brother bring the there were telescreens big videos on the walls and people would be brought together to scream against you know, Iran, China, Russia, you know, and it was bringing a divided population together. The workers could identify with the elites of society to fight the foreign enemy. So you have this kind of toxic um, system going on, which is responsible for all these things you were just talking about in relation to it. You know, the United States has been funding. I mean, Israel is basically an outpost of the Pentagon, and we've been sending $4 billion of military aid to Israel, which is immediately sent back to the United States to Lockheed Martin and to Boeing and to all the American military companies, which then produce the things which Israel buys with the money that we get them. So there's a long history of, you know, any of the current, you know, conflagrations of um, which are extremely dangerous. You're, I mean, you're absolutely right, as you were saying, that we're in a a period of history that I think really it's kind of, it can't be argued that there's never been a, a crisis in human history, anything like that. You know, the, the climate um, numbers right now are like, we have to go back about 26 million years to see a period where the climate has moved to the kind of level that we have now. And the, you know, we've miraculously lived as long as we have with nuclear weapons, but in Ukraine, um, in this current crisis, it, it's not at all hard to imagine. Um, in fact, it's a little bit hard to imagine that these things will not escalate because of the huge number of tactical nuclear weapons on the Russian border right now. And the fact that Israel um, has several hundred, we don't know exactly how many nuclear weapons, um, so that this crisis that is exploding right now in the Middle East, um, where, uh, you know, the, the survival of, of people in Gaza who are victims of all this um, uh, is really in question. And so in any case, all of these intertwined crises are sort of our own creation. I don't mean this just America, but it's it's part of a global economic system, which in the United States has been because the United States is the most powerful country in the world, and has been the most unfettered uh, in its both its militarism and its climate policies. Um, we have enormous accountability, and that's why I did the book. It's just I would say it is 
the most dangerous period in human history. The book is very historical, and I, I do spend a lot of my time thinking about history. So, um, you know, I think it's very easy to sort of say, well, the current crisis of democracy is simply new. We haven't seen this before. I mean, mm -hmm. that crisis itself goes way back in American history. Not that it doesn't have new and very frightening elements right now. I totally share your um, your concern about what Trumpism is bringing to the table right now. But this is all part of a, um, a larger historical legacy that, and I think most Americans do not have partly because of the media and the way to remember most media is corporate. Um, they don't really have a, a sort of voice for um, understanding how dangerous and how intertwined all these things are. And of course, in, in a way, the, the kind of cultural kind of propaganda system that exists in all countries, but is very powerful in the United States, teaches to us to celebrate the national security system that is so engaged in, you know, fueling these wars that are so dangerous. And, you know, the economic, the sort of celebration of the kind of economic growth that's based on commodities that, you know, many of which are not necessary and which need to be melded with, um, you know, we have a terrible deprivation of public goods, not the private goods sold on the market, but healthcare, education, public space of all kinds where people can interact collectively in mm -hmm. public spaces where they don't spend all their time consuming things at home individually, but are engaged in public, um, you know, public life community life, which is not putting the same kind of pressure on the planet. So I mentioned this, this I'm sorry to go on for so long, but just that while this book is very um, scary in terms of being very clear about the threats that are systemic and seem overwhelming, it also is hopeful in the sense that I do believe that, and we look at this historically, that large system change has happened in the United States. And there are, you know, there are many reasons to believe it's not going to be easy by any means, particularly because uh, these crises are so urgent and time dependent. But, you know, as, if, if you've looked at the book, you know that we look at abolitionism in the 19th exactly. century as a kind of a large system. That was the whole Confederate slave system intertwined with Northern capitalism, but very much its own system. And, you know, um, uh, a very improbable mass movement developed um, over 30 or 40 years to eventually, you know, obliterate um, slavery, which was never, you know, to, to uh, basically defeat the Confederacy, which was kind of a, yeah. an American form of fascism. And very um, much. Nobody thought it was possible and it was happened. So we do spend a lot of time in the book thinking about how you change large systems and looking historically at ways in which large economic systems and political systems, which are very toxic, successfully have been um, challenged in the past. 
Well, I mean, uh, there, there's so much that I could comment on that you just shared with us, Professor. And we talked about some of this when you were here not too long ago talking about your book, Welcome to the Revolution. But right, I agree right. with you about the, the Pentagon. I mean, they are one of the leading voices in favor of climate science. And yet they are controlled by civilian pop politicians who are bought by an arms industry that have given us all these wars for oil. It's a very hypocritical irony. But as you point out in the book, both climate change and war are both caused by a human lust for power and for profit. We're just taught not to think about it. And the book is amazing in how it goes through the history of runaway capitalism and how the U.S. became the leading capitalist power and how it's always this modern capitalism has always been inseparable from this polluting and war causing fossil fuel industry. Um, but I, I, I do appreciate how you draw on the history of abolition and emancipation to show us that, yes, even when a system appears to be completely unmovable, institutional, that it can still be transformed. And you do cite many organizations and movements and practices that are true models of hope in our in our final minute. Let me just ask you, who's giving you hope right now? Well, one, I mean, there are actually many potential possibilities here. You think about what they call the summer of strikes, which was when the Hollywood strikes and the UAW strike, there's a large SEIU, a service worker healthcare strike going now. There are more workers who have gone militantly on strike to protest yes, the enormous inequality between the profits that these very large companies are pulling in and the wage, you know, the wage stagnation for, you know, John, for in the last 50 years, the American ordinary American working family today um, is making in real income terms less money than it was making 50 years ago. As Absolutely. the economy has grown and the, 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 the people at the very top have seen, you know, multi billionaire you know development so that's just one form i think yeah. also there's in other words the i think there are real possibilities in this new militancy in the labor movement right now sean fain mm -hmm. the, the uaw is a Amen. really important voice because he's bringing to labor unions a much more militant kind of um social justice approach for the whole society, not just for wages for a particular union. And then I think young people who I have a lot of contact with all the time, you know, they are exposed to their lives, their future are hanging in the balance. One, because of climate change. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they know that they're not going to, may not be able to live out their natural lives. They're also afraid of getting shot on campus or in right. school or so, you're seeing among young people a very broad kind of, you know, it's not crystallized in a single movement like, like the anti-war. No, movement. it never is. Yeah. But yeah, the anti, you know, the abolitionist movement was, you know, one of the things that we learned from. Well, that sir, I'm was, so sorry, but I'm, I'm so afraid we're out of time. Oh, Please forgive oh, me. Okay. Uh, but you 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 just nailed it. And I mean, this book covers everything. Charles Derber is the co-author. The book, once again, is Dying for Capitalism, How Big Money Fuels Extinction and What We Can Do About It. Professor, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I could listen to you for days. You nail everything <laughs> in this book. Have a great John, evening. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the time. Thank, thank you. We'll be right back. This is Sirius XM. Welcome back. Let me quote my next guest from his excellent new piece in The New Republic. The situation in Israel 
precipitated by the vicious Hamas attacks over the weekend is ghastly on its own terms, but it's not just a potential nightmare for Israel and the Palestinian people. It could have ramifications around the world, including here in the United States, and some it's going to bring chaos. Chaos and instability. And chaos and instability are enemies of democracy. We know who benefits from chaos and instability abroad and here at home. Those are the words of our friend Michael Tomaski. He is the editor of The New Republic. He's also an author, the editor of Democracy, a Journal of Ideas, and a sometimes contributor to The New York Times and The New York Review of Books. He's also one of our favorite guests. And The New Republic is going to be gathering a real amazing roster of people for a very special Stop Trump Summit, asking, can our democracy save the 2024 election? That will be Wednesday, October 11th at New York City's historic Cooper Union. It can be seen on live stream if you'd like. It's going to feature uh, our friend, congressman and constitutional scholar Jamie Raskin, up and coming actor Robert De Niro, the Trump whistleblower Miles Taylor, uh, Michael Cohen, and of course, Mary Trump. A lot of those people are our favorite guests on this show. If you can't make it to Cooper Union on Wednesday, you can see it uh, through the live stream at tnr.com slash events. Michael Tomaski, what a pleasure to welcome you back under such terrible circumstances to Sirius XM. Hello. Uh, hey, John. Yeah, the circumstances um, are always trying, but probably especially so. Um this week. But uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. again. Thank you, sir. Your piece in The New Republic is amazing about this. It's it's been very scary. Uh, and it seems each day it's getting uglier and more filled with deception the, between the misinformation I'm seeing all day over the Iranian deal, uh, right wing propagandists like Elon Musk spreading information, uh, misinformation and anti-Semitism. We're seeing still a hold in many diplomatic appointments led by Rand Paul and Tommy Tuberville. We don't have a Speaker of the House. We don't have a leader of the Navy. We don't have an ambassador to Israel. And all over, we see the same people who blamed Americans for a terrorist attack in Benghazi, who blamed Ukraine for Putin's genocidal invasion, trying to blame the Joe Biden White House for a failure of intel without any blame at all cast towards the Netanyahu regime. Uh, Michael, what what is concerning you yeah. the most right now, long term, about this atrocity over the weekend and how its ripple effects are already manifesting itself around the globe? Yeah, well, long term, it's it's what you summed up, what I what I tried to express in that paragraph of mine that you read at the top of the segment. Um, I fear uh, a long and very violent conflict here that that could draw in more uh, actors than just Israel and Hamas. Uh, I fear that, you know, well, Israel's retaliation is justified, that, that, that you know, it might be a retaliation that, like America's retaliation for 9-11, uh, in some senses played into the terrorist hands. Um, and, um, you know, I, I fear just, uh, as I wrote, general chaos and instability, and chaos and instability is, is not a friend of, of democracy and of Joe Biden and of, and of small-D Democrats uh, uh, and liberals around the world. Chaos and instability are the friends of Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, uh, groups like Hamas, uh, leaders like Netanyahu, who's been, who has been trying to wreck Israeli democracy uh, for the better part of this year uh, with what he's trying to do to the judicial system. Um, yeah, I just fear that, um, you know, the, the, I, I, it's hard to see good outcomes. Of all the parallels to 9-11, I, I fear that you're right. That is the most apt, the way that no one ever talked about our failure of intelligence. Um, in fact, the, the head of national security, 
who oversaw the greatest failure in American intelligence, was promoted to a secretary of state. And we see no such scrutiny applied to the Netanyahu regime for their failures in intelligence. If anything, uh, we're hearing from Egyptians that they were given warnings. It, it seems like it's, as you say in the piece, regular people always pay the real price of chaos and terror. And they tend to believe this propaganda because in times of such uncertainty, the strong man always reigns. Yeah. And, you know, that's another depressing aspect of it to see this, to see people uh, believing this propaganda, to see people around the world in, in Beirut and elsewhere cheering what Hamas did, um, to see people on the broad left in, in the West cheering what Hamas did. There ha there haven't been that many of them, but there have been some of them. And, you know, Hamas is no friend of 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 progressive values by any stretch of the imagination. You know, they, they what kind of right, you know, people should look into the rights that women and LGBTQ people have, um, you know, in those uh, in Gaza. Exactly. And, 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 you know, it's just so that's uh, I don't know. There's uh, there's no it's hard to see a good response. It's hard to see a good outcome. And, and you know, it's uh, I fear we're just headed for a lot of violence and um, and, you know, violence that's, you know, to, to put it in terms of Americans, most immediate concerns, your listeners, most immediate concerns, violence that might well help Donald Trump. You're exactly right. It is very easy to sympathize with the plight of the Palestinian people and be repulsed by the despicable terrorism and violence of Hamas, which doesn't really seem to care about all the suffering this will inflict on the Palestinian people. And I was yeah. thinking there's at that music festival where over 200 young people were slaughtered. I'm sure plenty of those young people have protested their own Israeli government over the treatment of the Palestinians. This was a violent and indiscriminate slaughter of people. Yeah. And, you know, Trump yeah. is already trying to capitalize off this. All the Republicans running for president are. Um, you point out that Trump's Abraham Accords were one of the few good things his administration accomplished. Uh, it was a, a sort of a peace deal between three countries that weren't at war, but it was a trade deal. Uh, however, Joe Biden has been trying very hard to forge a real peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia. It seems like that process may be over now. Um, are you concerned that many people will believe Donald Trump's assessment just because it's so simple? Yeah, yeah, I'm afraid they will. I mean, you know, uh, look, all he has to get out there when you're on the sidelines and, and you don't have responsibility for anything, uh, you can just take pot shots, and when you're willing to just completely lie, as he obviously is, uh, he'll say anything. And so he'll say, "I had peace in the Middle East," which he didn't. <laughs> uh, but you know, I had I broke a deal between Israel and the Gulf states. He'll say the Gulf states, even though it was really just Bahrain and Bahrain and, right. and the UAE. Uh, and Biden's trying to do something that with with Israel and Saudi Arabia, which is a lot harder. But yeah, uh, you know. <laughs> The, the there's some kind of paradox in here. I don't know if I'm going to articulate this perfectly, John, but the very people who create chaos and mayhem in the world then can turn around and be the ones who benefit from that chaos and mayhem because they can just say, look, these democratic institutions are failing you. And these same authoritarians that you mentioned from Xi Jinping, uh, Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin, even the Ayatollahs, even the Saudi royal family, they all have very specific reasons yeah, to yeah. want 
a corrupt racist clown like Donald Trump back in the White House to further create more destabilization, which in turn helps all of them. Yeah, of course they do. I mean, Putin obviously has very specific reasons, you know, uh, you know, if Trump's president, how long does Ukraine survive? You know, a matter of weeks, probably. Um, I hate to say it. Um, maybe a matter of days. Who knows? Um, so Putin has his specific reasons. But uh, but all uh, but all of those kinds of actors want Trump because he destabilizes the United States and they know he destabilizes the United States and they want a weaker United States. Uh, in addition to cover for their own authoritarian tendencies. You mentioned that now um, this could be the end for Ukraine, days and even weeks. I mean, do you do you think that this White House would take their eyes off the ball like that, that, that they would somehow stop foreign aid? Or is this happening at a time when there is no Speaker of the House and it would be easier for the Republicans to scuttle any chance of further military aid to Ukraine, struggle for democracy and independence? Well, just to be clear, I meant to say, I hope I said that it would be a matter of weeks or days if Trump became president again. Oh, I'm sorry. I get it. Uh, okay. I, I think, no, that's okay. Yeah. I mean, but um, that's what I think I said. Um, but um, no, I, I, the Biden administration will move heaven and earth to try to continue aid to Ukraine. Um, but yes, all, all the factors you just mentioned make it more complicated. You know, that, that there's no Speaker of the House to move things through, that, that, that more and more Republicans are turning against it. That, that Republicans will obviously be very supportive of military aid to Israel and will say, well, we have to give this to Israel now and Ukraine goes on the back burner. And, you know, the Putin is licking his, licking his chops about that as well. So, um, you know, a, a collapse of Ukraine would be another, you know, just hideous crisis for, for democracy and, and for, for all the things that, that we want to stand for. But I, I think Biden and, and other uh, Western democracies uh, will pitch in and fight very hard uh, to keep that fight coming. It, it grieves me to add the name of Robert Kennedy Jr. to the list of chaos agents who are seemingly trying to yeah. restore Trump to the White House. Uh, baffling as that is, Michael, what uh, you're holding this event tomorrow for the New Republic with J.B. Raskin and Robert De Niro and Mary Trump. Um, and I want to ask you about it. But what's at stake I mean, what do you see happening if somehow Donald Trump can carve away enough support from the Democratic ticket in the seven swing states to, again, lose the popular vote, but still gain the White House? What What's at stake and what would you expect? Well, you know, our democracy, as we've known, it, is, is at stake. Um, you know, there's uh, there are a couple of political scientists who identified this category of, of regime that they call competitive authoritarianism. So they went to study, uh, this was around 2010 or so, they went to study uh, regimes uh, of the former Eastern Bloc to determine whether they had become democracies or whether they were still authoritarian, as, uh, authoritarian. And they found that many of them were hybrids, that they had the trappings of democracy and some of the look and feel and smell of democracy. But if you looked under the hood, the, the democratic institutions that they had set up really didn't function well. And the system right. was essentially rigged, but it looked like a democracy. That's what I think we're going to have, a competitive authoritarian regime in the United States of America. Trump's going to do all the things he's been telling us he's going to do, John, you know, wreck the executive branch and, and put in cronies and, and, and go after enemies and try to crack down on the press and try to do with the press what Viktor Orban has done in Hungary, which is 
which is to hand it to cronies uh, and so forth. So he'll try to do all that. Uh, and, and in the meantime, the Republican Party will try to set up the, the uh, uh, functionings of our democracy such that Republicans can never lose an election again. That's if we have a presidential election in 2028, which exactly. I wouldn't necessarily bet on. You write in your piece in The New Republic, Michael, obviously the end of NATO will be one early result. More generally, the U.S. will become a global partner of Russia, Hungary, Turkey, and even North Korea. Think about that. And remember back in 2016, Trump was getting a briefing from a foreign policy advisor and asked three times why the United States can't use nuclear weapons. It's it's truly horrifying and it's truly pathetic. Um, and I'm very inspired that you're going to be hosting this event tomorrow um, at uh, here in New York City at the Cooper Union. Uh, tell me a bit about it and how this came together. I have to say, I mean, Jamie Raskin, Robert De Niro, Miles Taylor, Michael Cohen and Mary Trump. This is a group I would spend an hour with talking about politics and Donald Trump. Um, what should we expect? And, and you're moderating, right? Yeah, well, I'm as close as it comes to being an MC. I'm going to welcome people and I'm going to uh, maybe moderate one panel. But we're actually going to have a series of moderators. Some people are giving speeches. Some people are going to be on panels. Some people are going to be doing one on one interviews like Mary Trump is going to be interviewed by Molly Jong Fast uh, later in the day. Uh, yeah, it's a great lineup of people. It was the brainchild of our publisher, Michael Caruso. And then I went out and others of us went out and recruited the people to come. And, and you know, everybody, pretty much everybody instantly said, yes, absolutely. That's something I want to be a part of because I want to be part of making this statement uh, to uh, new public readers, to, to uh, sympathetic audiences in New York and across the country uh, that, you know, we're going to, that it's time to take a stand, that it's, it's affirmatively time to take a big stand uh, yeah, about what the, 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 the challenges and consequences that, that we face here. So, so uh, we've gotten a tremendous response, um, uh, sold a lot of tickets, but it's Cooper Union's a big hall, so there, there are seats. And I really would encourage people uh, who are listening to this who are in New York City to please come. It's going to be a lot more fun in person uh, than over live stream, but the live stream is going to be great too. And we've had you know, a few thousand sign up for that. And um, so it's going to be a big audience and it's going to be a big thing. And um, uh, I'm proud that we're apparently pulling it off. It's it's amazing. Anytime. I mean, you can get Robert De Niro to make a public appearance. Uh, it's <laughs> heroic on from all sides. I, I have to confess, I'm, I'm a bit worried, Michael. I, I wanted to ask, do you take any solace from the fact that Donald Trump has seven different criminal trials between now and the Republican National Convention this summer? Um, there's the four big ones. There's the other three that don't get as much attention. Uh, does it give you any hope that one of these other Republican mediocrities might somehow be able to wrest the nomination? Or is it, in your estimation, going to come down to a rematch between these two men? I, I, it could be over after Iowa and New Hampshire, right? I mean, let's just look at the primary calendar and think about those kinds of logistics. Trump's way ahead in Iowa, even though it's not necessarily on paper his kind of place. But, you know, the, the polls show what the polls show. He's way ahead there. So let's say he wins there. New Hampshire is where Christie is going to really go after Trump. Now, Christie's obviously not going to win, but, you know, he may ding him enough that Nikki Haley can win or some kind of scenario like that. 
if somebody else wins New Hampshire, then it's a race, at least for a while. But I think if Trump wins Iowa and New Hampshire, and remember, in New Hampshire, non-Republicans can vote. So uh, independent voters can get in there. But if Trump wins Iowa and New Hampshire, that's probably about it, do you think? I don't know. I mean, I think you may be right. It certainly seems like these other candidates, uh, the DeSantis, et cetera, are, are hanging in there waiting to see something take them out. But I don't see these folks on the left and the center talking about the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment coming to anyone's rescue. At this point, I would be afraid of even more violence if a state tried to keep Donald Trump off the ballot. I think it would also open up uh, charges of hypocrisy, being anti-democratic to go after Trump for being anti-democracy. Am I cynical about that? Or are you hopeful that somehow the 14th Amendment could get him knocked off some ballots in some states? I don't know. That's this the subject of a panel at the Stop Trump Summit tomorrow. Mm. Uh, so we'll hear what the, we have a couple of terrific experts and we'll we'll put these questions to them. But yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, we know by now that that anything that attempts to hold Trump accountable for who he is and what he's done will simply be taken by most Republicans, not all, but most Republicans as being illegitimate election interference. And so all that will just help him. Uh, But, you know, the long term question is whether it will help him in a general election. Uh, whether it will help him with those swing voters in those handful of states that you mentioned, whether they really agree with the Republican base. And there's where I have some hope and have some suspicion that they don't, that that like your average swing voter in, in Michigan or Wisconsin who took a flyer on Trump in 2016 and switched to Biden in 2020, I don't see many of those people switching back. Uh, you know, unless Biden has some bad health event. But I just don't see many right. of those people switching back. Yeah, I got to say, I think Roe v. Wade uh, certainly guarantees that there will be uh, even more committed voters than we saw in 2020. And I'd like to believe that over the next year, seeing the effects of the infrastructure bill begin to transform neighborhoods around the country will be capitalized on. But again, these are Democrats we're talking about. It's always a messaging problem. <laughs> you do say towards the end of your piece... Yeah democracy won't completely disappear and millions of us will fight like hell for it. You know, I I think Donald Trump's presidency was one of the greatest things ever to happen to democracy because we have never seen as large a turnout for an election as we saw after four years of Trump. Will you still have hope even if this man somehow gets into the White House? Because I can guarantee you one thing, Michael, even if he does, it it, it will not end well for him. Uh, no, it won't. But, you know, he, you know, uh, he it won't end well for a lot of people. <laughs> Let's just yes. put it that way. I mean, <laughs> you know, what 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 he would unleash in a second term is, is just, uh, you know, horrible to contemplate. But, you know, that said, yeah, uh, we're going to fight. You know, you're going to fight. I'm going to fight. Everybody listening to us now is going to fight. And uh, and we're not going to give up. And. and you know, there is a certain sense to what you're saying that, you know, I mean, it's not like, you know, you're not saying you're glad Donald Trump happened, but but. Oh, no, uh, I'm not. We now. No, of course not. But but we see now he clarifies for us the fight we're in and the stakes we face. 
Let's pray for the resilience of the American voter. Michael Tomaski is the editor of The New Republic and one of our favorite guests. The New Republic's um, Stop Trump Summit is tomorrow. That's Wednesday, October 11th at New York City's historic Cooper Union. Uh, You should go there in person, but if you can't make it to New York, check out the live stream at tnr.com slash events. Michael, it's so good to have you back. Thank you for joining us. Likewise, Sean. Hope to do it anytime soon. You're always welcome here. Thank you. And we'll be right back. We have read your emails. We have read your direct messages. We have read your angry texts. We know you're mad Keith Price wasn't on last week. Sorry. Keith is a terrific comedian and actor and writer and radio star. He was the first openly gay black radio host at Sirius XM. He co-anchored the morning show on the Breakthrough Channel OutQ. You should catch his wonderful Broadway podcast, Keith Price's Curtain Call. Keith does not choose to define the word sexy as he feels he redefines the word every time he appears in public. People of Earth, wherever you are, take your hands off the driving wheel and clap them for Keith Price, my hump day bay. Welcome back. Hello. Hello, hello, hey, love. How are you? Well, we missed you last week. So, if you want to give us your your, so your hot, crazy. you want to give your hot take on uh, Kevin McCarthy no longer being speaker. This is the time. <laughs> Nothing's <laughs> happened since then. Can I just tell you the moment that I saw that news? I literally I stood in the middle of Times Square, giggling for like about a good 20, 25 minutes because I just couldn't believe how ridiculous our government has become. And and, and the idea that when, <laughs> when he's like, well, if they really think they're going to do it, then they should just bring it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I put that meme up from what was it? Bring it on. Or that, that fake movie about bring it on. <laughs> it's yes. just, it has been, it has been brought in, you know, like <laughs> they brought it and brought your ass right out of that boot. And, you know, on one hand, I'm like, that's great that they did that. I'm, you know, I think that that's just hilarious. And again, to see the history being made again with this, this, <laughs> this ridiculous caucus, 15, what is it? 15 times. At a, how long did it take it for him to 15 finally get the vote? 15. And then 15. And then for them to kick him the hell out is even more funny. It's like, wow. It's the it's only like, time. It's going. the only time these Republicans have ever enjoyed democracy. Was was building <laughs> was was torturing yeah Kevin McCarthy you know and and the thing Keith that like I don't like, these Republicans tried to say the Democrats did this no yeah no, Republicans did this Democrats chose to not save him this time but That's the it. Republicans did it and they did it because he did not shut down the government like Donald Trump wanted because he chose to not be a chaos agent the chaos agents had to take him out. That's it. He delivered well, a clean CR, government opened for 45 more days, and that was the deal breaker for the likes of Matt Gates. Well, and again, that little punk, he's such a punk. Oh, I don't even know why. Such a punk. He, he needs somebody to just punch him right in his freaking throat because Please. he is annoying yeah. as fuck. And I can't, I agree. you know, the idea that now he's become some sort of spokesperson for this renegade group of losers is just beyond me. It's just beyond me. You know, and again, and they're engaging. People are engaging him. He's peeing, you know, him and that horrible Marjorie Taylor Greene. And and then, and like, those are the big vocal ones out of that group. There's still a couple of other ones that are a little on the subversive. Oh, no, but Gates is, but Gates is just, 
He is the face of the party <clears throat> and the extremely large forehead, this petulant millionaire at birth, government sabotaging, alleged statutory rapist, rich daddy mm-hmm. bailing out his DUIs, Putin genocidal boot licking crypto fascist brat, brought a Holocaust denier to the State of the Union as his guest. They've mm-hmm. turned on him, Keith. I mean, like these Republicans, the what's his name from Oklahoma? They're all coming out about like every time he's shown pictures of the women he's banging on his cell phone on the floor. He he said that uh, Christy Nome was a, a, a fine bitch. Like they're calling him out for the <laughs> scoundrel and douchebag he is. These are Republicans calling him out for yeah, douchebaggery. I don't think but, he's going to be in Congress that much longer. Well, so he's going to go out with a big hurrah. But see, but know. the thing is, is that they they are doing their best to now try to act like they're doing something about this. And it's like, y'all are late. The, the, yeah. the zombies are already taking over everything. Now you got nowhere to run. Now y'all have to, we're going to have to start, you know, I hate to use the metaphor that they use for the zombies. You know what I'm saying? But that's the only way we're going to be able to get rid of some of them. You know what You're I'm right. saying? Like they're going right. to have to start, you know, bashing in a few heads of these people. That's true. To get them out of the way, because honestly, at this stage of the game now, you know, these Republicans that are trying to like act like they care now, it's like, where were you two years ago? Where were you four years ago? Where were you during the Trump years? You were all sitting in the corner making your plans to get whatever you can while the distraction of these crazy people that y'all led into your party. Yeah, that's true. You know, they allow them to take it. When I saw Newt Gingrich screaming about what a cancer on his party Matt Gates is, someone, and I apologize for not knowing who offhand, I can only keep so much of this on my mental hard drive, but someone said Gingrich is the guy who poured radioactive waste into the lake 30 years ago, and now he's he's screaming at this three-eyed fish called Matt Gates in the same lake. (laughs) I love it. It probably explains the forehead. You know, but still... (laughs) Yeah, you know, I kind of wish we were back in last week when it was all just funny and not full of this news of horrible human suffering. I mean, the real theme to me here is it is possible to say that uh, the Palestinian people suffer terribly and to say that Hamas are douchebag evil terrorists, just like it's possible to say that Netanyahu is a criminal who probably would have been thrown out of office if this hadn't happened. Mm-hmm. And the Israeli people don't deserve any of this and they deserve to live in safety. I mean, it's like I'm just you rooting know. for the people on both sides. I despise the leadership on both sides. They are, to me, codependent and mm-hmm. they need each other because without Hamas, he, Netanyahu can't survive. And if there was an actual peacemaker in Israel who wanted to help Palestine, Hamas would be out of business. So these Mm -hmm. awful, evil, toxic motherfuckers are keeping this thing going. Well, you know, the thing is interesting, though, when you just what you said about Netanyahu almost basically being thrown out of office, it's sort of like, well, it would behoove him that even if he had gotten this information in advance to be able to stop this, that he wouldn't do it because by not doing it, it puts him in this position. Well, he's the person in power. So we have to try to figure out how to do this because if he, you know, if we're without a leader at this particular junction in time, then all kinds of things can happen. And of course he knows that it's, it's almost akin to when Trump did that whole interview with Bernstein, uh, what is it? Leonard Bernstein, Leonard Bernstein, Leonard Bernstein. Yes. Donald Trump and <laughs> Leonard Bernstein. Bernstein. Fascinating. I mean, they, it covered so Bob, much. Bob and Woodward. The dancing was good too. Yeah. Bob Woodward. Amazing. When Woodward was... and Leonard Bernstein. No, we can. Good night, folks. <laughs> We're done. Good night. <laughs> Leave Play Patty Smith, Chris. We're... 
<laughs> I got to get get a musical leader in there somewhere, you know. But, but you know, when he when you're a interviews... Trump, you're a Trump all the way. I'm sorry, I'm still going to do it. Go ahead, stop me. Talk. <laughs> but like when you think about him, Bob Woodward, when he was talking about the whole COVID thing with with yeah. Woodward, and it's like that's it. In that moment, he knew what was going on, but said nothing. Yeah, and continue to placate the story and the lie because he and had it's a better important. plan. Yeah. And it's and by it the way, and Bob Woodward did release that, and that's what I have, we have to keep reminding everyone. Donald Trump, the same week, he said we have to reopen America and fill the pews in the churches on Easter Sunday. The same week he told your grandma to go to church on Easter Sunday, twenty twenty, he's on tape telling Woodward that he knows this is an airborne killer and it's deadly. He was yep. willing to sacrifice everybody's loved ones for his reelection. For his reelection. And so, I mean, you know, some of these people that are in desperate need to be in power, it, it, I guess to, to um, I guess to protect their own criminal enterprises, yeah. <laughs> like they need to stay yeah. in power in order to do that. And so if that means you got to let grandma go, sorry, granny, you're out. <laughs> it's like <laughs> they have, they've got no compunction. You want to, you know, take off a whole sector of a country in order to make sure that people still see you as a leader, you know, I'm sorry. I, I, I thought I heard a little rumor about some sort of hump, some sort of hubbub with the Hamas. And so I just wasn't really sure. And so I just yeah. like kind of let it go. I mean, you know, people have done worse. People yeah. have done worse to keep the power. And now mm -hmm. we can see that how dangerous it is for people who are really making an effort to steal power and That's right. and use power in a way that it's not right for the rest of the world. And, you know, again, I don't know how we're going to get these despotic folks out. I don't, you know, I, I, honestly, I don't know how else we can do it without it having to be a violent removal. That's a better way um, of putting it. And yeah, I, I, I mean, cause, yeah, I because the legal... I'm a big fan of the nonviolent way. I don't I, I don't I, need you know, to string I... Mussolini up myself personally. No, I'd rather... no, 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 no. But I mean, but, you know, how else would they have gotten rid of them at this point? Like up until those yeah. moments when they did get them, how how else would they have gotten rid of Mussolini? You know, I know the way the they got rid of Gaddafi, the way. Yeah. The way they got rid of Ceausescu, you know, because yeah. Hitler allegedly committed suicide. So that means he really wasn't planning on going anywhere, you know, sort of like. Right. You know, so uh, it's it's on his an wedding ugly night. thought. You know, yeah, on his wedding night, I know. But like, <laughs> poor Ava, huh? So I, I feel like though at some point, no, fuck her. She signed on for all of that. Fuck, I'm sorry. Well, fuck Ava. Well, you know, yeah, but, as yeah. most of those women do, you know, yeah. they traded in their whatever it is. Oh, to be she that was close she to was power. the Camille Cosby of the Third Reich. You're right, man. You got it. Um, <laughs> Keith, we have a lot of people who want to weigh in on things. I'm so glad you're back, Comedy Daddy. I missed you last week. <laughs> Just wait, you just floored me with that one. Stop. <laughs> I, I'm never going to get tired of bringing up that Camille is the Carmela Soprano of the comedy world. Um, let me go to, uh, hey, it's our good friend Kendall in, uh, in, in Utah. Kendall, welcome. Hey, You're on with Keith. Good Kendall. evening. Yeah, I've been listening to you. And I'm kind of a little curious. Would you uh, prefer this be considered a criminal act or an act of war or what happened in Israel? It's an act of terrorism. You can call it an act of war, sure. Act of terrorism, it could be either one, right? Well, it's all well, but 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 the Palestine, the the governing authority is Hamas. It's not Abbas, so you can say that it was uh, all three. You can say it's an act of war, it's terrorism, and it's a criminal act. I think nine eleven was a criminal act well, and a terrorism act. I don't care why. 
It's evil. What do you well, want me to call it? Because you brought up 9-11. After 9-11, you, uh, there was lots of people on the left that considered 9-11 nothing more than an act of criminal act. Well, it was a criminal act, and it was an act of terror. It was an act of terrorism, but it wasn't done by a formal government. Uh, it was done by a bunch of terrorists who were financed by governments, including Donald Trump's best friends, the Saudis. Is that ever a problem for you that Donald Trump's son took two billion dollars from the people behind nine eleven? Has that ever caused you a moment of discomfort? No. I didn't think of it had. So really, your concerns are really just you hate liberals and you don't mind when Ugh, people you like no. work with terrorists. Kendall, no, you don't we're mind. Play this game again. Let me ask you a question. Hillary Clinton <laughs> said we should uh, all the MAGA people should be deprogrammed. What's your opinion on that? How would this work? I, I think it would be a fabulous thing for I that think, to happen. I think However, it would be fantastic, Kendall. If, you, if there was a way that we could hook electrodes up to your head and your humanity was restored, I, I, I would get behind it, but it would violate your civil liberties, so are I you can't. Are saying I'm not human? No, Kendall. I'm saying you're cut you, off you from your humanity. You're less than human? No, Kendall, I think your hatred cuts you off from your humanity. Your hatred makes you dumber. Your hatred makes you meaner. Kendall, your hatred of people on the left, it makes you stupid and mean, Kendall. It makes you say things that you'll probably regret later. So, yeah, I think you are cut off from your humanity. You don't recognize that I'm not your enemy, and I never will be your enemy. (laughs) See what I'm saying, Kendall? This is the part where you sound stupid. (laughs) <laughs> yes, well, President exactly President Hillary Clinton. President Hillary Clinton's going to put you in a detention camp, Kendall. Tattoo it on your face, and please go to the comments <laughs> section and tell them. Please, I, I don't have the tinfoil hat, but I'll buy you one. Yeah, please, no. yes. How, how would you react if a Republican Kendall, said such a stupid thing? You, I would make fun of him, Kendall, because they it's do. stupid. Your hatred makes you stupid, and Republicans do it. Donald Trump was talking about making concentration camps just last month to put drug dealers and immigrants in. Concentration camps, Kendall. But again, you don't mind when Republicans do it. Donald Trump has got the balls, the testicles of Prince Mohammed bin Salman resting on his chin 24-7, and you think that's manly because you're in a cult of unmanly obedience, Kendall. So I don't know what to tell you, man. I'm not your enemy. I want you to live a long, healthy life. Yes, you are, Kendall. You're in a cult. You are blindly uh, obedient so to Donald Trump, Kendall. You is in a cult. And the fact no, that Kendall, no, this just, long just and nobody's you. punched you in your throat is just still you, Kendall. Me. You are blindly obedient to a mediocrity who won't stop lying to you. You're in a cult. You're in a cult. You're giving money. You're, you're part of a group of people that are giving a billionaire money to pay his legal bees. Here, legal let's find fees. out, Kendall. Let's see. Now, do you believe that Donald Trump slept with Stormy Daniels and paid her 130 grand to be quiet? Or do you believe that he never slept with her, but paid her the 130K anyway? Which of those two do, do you, you believe? Do you think, I, I think Donald Trump slept with Stormy Daniels, and I think he paid her money. And I don't think he's the first one or the only one or the last one to ever do such a thing. Okay, good of for course. you. I appreciate, I appreciate it. Uh, North Korea tortured Otto Wambier to death. The Saudis dismembered Jamal Khashoggi. And Putin mm-hmm. hacked our electrical grid. And Trump did nothing about any of it. Why is that okay with you? Khashoggi? Yeah, Khashoggi. They hacked him to death. They hacked him to death while he was still alive. 
You think Saudi Arabia is the first country that ever... That's Uh-oh. not my question. You're dodging. See, Kendall, you're in a cult of obedience, and it has cut you but off from your humanity. They cut and- him up with machetes while he screamed, and Donald Trump went over there and said, I saved his ass. He told Bob Woodward, I saved yeah, Mohammed well, bin Salman's ass. So did everybody else. No, they didn't. Yeah. Now, I'm asking you, why is it okay with you that Donald Trump covered up the murder of an American journalist? Why is that acceptable to you? everybody knows about it if they covered it up they did a pretty lousy job of it why is it acceptable to you because you're in a cult of obedience this is what i'm trying to do kendall so you need to be deprogrammed in a camp i'm going to ship you on a train to to a camp i'm going to ship you on a train to a camp and deprogram you you? what would you like to have done about it i would like a full investigation of his son taking two billion dollars from mbs for starters i gotta go kendall so, Kendall, uh, are you happy about, I mean, what, what did you call to talk about? Whether it's war Nothing. or not, it's all war. And it was an act of war and it's an act of terrorism. You're, you're, you're worried about uh, his son, Trump's son-in-law uh, doing a business deal. Yeah, that no, he's because well, they're yes. criminals. Because they're criminals yes. and they take money from terrorists who slaughter Americans. But again, terrorists who slaughter Americans, Donald Trump defending those terrorists isn't a problem for you, Kendall. And you need to look in the mirror for a long time and ask yourself why. But you're, 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 you're finding every way you can to back, uh, back the Palestinians in Hamas. No, I'm not. I no, mean, I'm not. Uh, I, 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 I don't back Hamas at all. What are you talking about? Well, well, How can you say that? You now you're just lying, dude. Was President... No, 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 no. Hang on a second. Was Kendall a war criminal when he firebombed President... Yes. Now, Kendall, when did I ever back Hamas? Yes. When did I ever defend Hamas? When did I defend Hamas? Kendall... You, cl- you, 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 my God, when did I defend Hamas? Because I think your mom raised a liar. I'm going to ask you to quote me when I defended them. I'll show you me on Bill Maher's show 20 years ago saying how much I hate Hamas. I'll show you me on TV. Gaza Strip voted Hamas. Yes, they did, because Hamas didn't do the job. It doesn't matter. The, the Palestinian people, you're just being a jerk now, Kendall. You're looking for a fight. I'm not going to give it to you. Go make a woman's life awful. Okay, Kendall? Go make a woman realize he doesn't want to date men. Or, Have a good night. Assuming, assuming you can get one. Let's yeah, see that happen. 866-997-4748. But he's, get one. He's, not in a, he's not in a cult, Keith. You know that? No, he's just a moron living on our planet. That's what he is. And I will say it, and he can say whatever he wants because I don't care. It's like, I am so sick and tired of people being this fucking stupid and so, so, what is it? Giving their failties to these fucking crazy ass people because they are so insecure about whatever the fuck it is that's in their life that makes them so insecure that they have to believe this stupid shit in order to act like they have feelings or have have anything to say. And it's a shame. It's a shame. That's what do they say? It's a Shonda. That's what it is. I'm a. (laughs) Let me get my little Hebrew in here. That's a Shonda that we are sitting here having a debate with these stupid ass people on a constant basis. Well, we don't have to. I just wanted to get you right up it's embarrassing for me because i mean and our listeners know this but kendall and i were kendall and i enjoyed an all too public uh, courtship and uh the sex was hot i mean it was all but but the only thing that bonded us was the sex he was into humiliation and and you know mm-hmm. all kinds of rough trade play yeah. and um i mean you can go online and see it kendall and i were known to all the leather houses and bath houses and every glory hole in the world yeah kendall's I you know been there so you. it's it's painful when he calls up the show because it brings back the good memories of all the hot sex we had with lots and lots and lots and lots of indiscriminate men. 
Um, <laughs> you know, you know, they do say crazy people have the best sex. So I, I can oh, that's only, true. That'll probably but be you, the only thing that Kendall has going on for you. You know, right now Kendall is screaming at his radio. That's not true. We didn't do that. He's screaming to no one. <laughs> that is God bless you, Kendall. Let me go, please, to Jim in New York. Jim, you're on with Keith Price. Thank you for waiting. I hope yeah, you've enjoyed yeah. the uh, the on hold entertainment network. <laughs> Hello. You know, I, I'm calling as a uh, older Republican when we were normal. I think the party got uh, <laughs> hijacked by some terrorists. God bless that are you. Crazy God bless you. Yeah. Because uh, when I was younger, if you had a president that was sleeping with porn queen, he would have been gone. Like, no questions yeah. asked, you know? Yeah. And the jerk. Can you imagine Bill on, Clinton? You know? Can you imagine Bill Clinton if he had done that? <laughs> yeah. Forget it. Well, you know, and, and the other problem is, too, you know, like the guy that just called, he'll be worried about somebody's sexuality, but he's OK with a porn queen sleeping with the president. And that's what's hijacked this country. He's OK with murder. You know? He's literally OK with murder. He's OK he's, with he's it. He's OK. Well, I, and one thing that you're wrong about is, you know, the Saudis are always giving two billion to everybody out there. You know, like they're just throwing yeah, money. Yeah, but when me they give when they and, give two billion to your family after you cover up a murder, I mean, Trump is on tape saying to Bob Woodward, "I saved his ass," and even Prince MBS's staff told him not to give money to Jared Kushner's VC hookup, but he did it anyway. It's a, it's it's disgusting. Well, your your oh, last wow. caller was probably calling from his trailer, but you know, and he's talking mm-hmm. about how it's okay to take two billion dollars. <laughs> Meanwhile, he doesn't have a pot to piss in. Well, and, now, let's uh, not shame mm-hmm. poverty. Let's not shame poverty, friends. No, no, let's no, not no, do no. that. Mm-hmm. Self, let's, let's talk about self-inflicted poverty because he, he's ignorant. You know, these people yeah. that are on the right now—they've become so ignorant, so stupid. You know, they they look at somebody like Donald Trump and they go, oh, you know, this guy's a billionaire. He's a billionaire. He's got all this money. Yeah, he's got all the money because he's stealing it from you. You know, and also he lost a billion dollars. I always say I always say name one billionaire, one person other than Donald Trump who's lost a billion dollars in their lifetime. (laughs) No one can do this. This guy never he never had a billion dollars. You know, it's it's just it's just he's always been a showman. He's always always been a clown and Always. this is what's representing our party you know like this is what's representing you know yeah. and it, it's a shame you know and the other shame is is that there is no more jimmy carter out there that could go to israel and take care of this and make peace because well, at the end of the day yeah. you know the innocent people are going to get killed and you know palestine is 63% um food uh What's a, you know, that the United Nations just said there's 63 percent impacted. Food insecure. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And Gaza, and, half, know, of, half of Gaza is children. Water? Half of Gaza yeah. is children and their water, their electricity. There's no medicine getting in there now. And half of them are children. I mean, it's one of it's one of the most densely populated places, not the most in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's acceptable to, to guys like Kendall because they've been raised to, you know, view Muslims as being less than full people. But, you know, Jimmy Carter, you could make the argument only got in there a man of such profound decency because of Nixon. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know if Carter could have gotten in there following anybody else. Right. No. No, he's he was he he could have been pope. I mean, he was the greatest uh, peace player ever in the history of yeah, the world. I mean, he's really, and you know, he's still a guy that could have did nothing for the rest of his life. Exactly he's out there right. hammering, putting houses together. And he's a real he's Christian. In hospice. Yeah, yeah he, and a, he was in hospice Christian. the other day. He's, and yeah, he went to his peanut parade in Plains, Georgia. Right. You know, he didn't have Rosalind to go. too. Rosalind too. They they yep. got out of the house. It's beautiful. 
Yeah, I'm with yeah. you. Yeah, no, it's well, and, and by the way, and he, and he created more job and he created more jobs than 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 Reagan and Bush. Jimmy Carter did too in his one term. Well, the the good thing about him is if he did good or bad, it turned out you know like it didn't turn out so well. He did things based on God and based on doing the right thing. And if it didn't yeah. turn out, it wasn't because he didn't try. And there was Thank no you. ulterior motive. And there was, and same thing with Obama. I, I Jim, loved you're Obama. You're my kind of Republican, loved, man. You're my kind of Republican. Well, listen, listen, Obama knew not to do a million things, not to upset the apple cart and to go crazy and start changing everything. Let it run. Well, Let things run. And well. he did it. And he could have done. You know, he could and, have done a little more. Could have done a little more. You know, when he had that, he had he had a couple of months with a couple of months with a sixty vote threshold. He, he could have. Mm-hmm. You know, people are too hard on him. There's a couple more things he could have done. A couple of things with the war on terror he didn't need to do. But yes, I'm a I'm a fan of Obama in general. Yes. But when he went into the office, we had a a recession going, major recession, oh, no doubt. We, we mm-hmm. had a war going, and he took he took care of it. He had a million things but that's, going on. That's Democrats. That's that's Bill Clinton did the same thing. Joe Biden's done the same thing. I mean, in the last forty but, years, every Democrat president has left the country better than they found it. I'm not a Democrat, but it's why I vote that way because they have every Democrat has inherited a mess and made it better, and mm-hmm. every Republican in in my lifetime has left the country worse than they found it because republicans have become based on money and what they can take i agree and Mm -hmm. and that's that's unfortunate you know and you know they'll give money to wherever they can on whatever cause that's uh crazy and meanwhile in their own district they'll have people that can't even be fed and and they don't Mm -hmm. care of it you know keith you want to weigh in keith let me let keith well i was just going to say that you know one of the things that I, I found is when you look at the, over time is that you can tell the core of the person by what has happened, especially as president, what they have done after they've left the office. Like, yes, good you know, point. look at what happened after all of these other presidents have left the office. You know, yeah, yeah George Bush is at home painting. That's the most he can Why does he my picture? Up, no, you know, you, instead yeah. of, and, you know, instead of him being one of the vocal people going after the Jim Jordans and going after yeah. and using in, in order to restore. Bush has never is, given a speech. Bush has never given a speech against Donald Trump. Not once. Not once. And so to me, there is there that says a lot about them because he's what legacy he's trying to protect. I have no idea. But at the same time, you know, he is in a position to restore a little bit of the order that that this I forgot the caller's name I'm so sorry but, uh, Jim. But, Jim Jim I'm so sorry Jim but like it's okay. you know the restoring the order that you remember as part of the Republican party and it's sort of like yeah. there's there's no one that's doing that that's the come out the fact that Mitt Republican Romney party. is just the fact that Mitt Romney is just polite and wrong it's about everything enough. but polite but it but it makes him look like Gandhi Compared exactly. to the, I mean, we we hold up Mitt Romney as this hallmark of civility, and he's a vulture capitalist who would buy businesses to lay people off for profit. But he's exactly. a good guy in the party. Yeah, you know? Jim, you're a gentleman. We got to go, Jim. But I thank you very much for the call. Call anytime. It's a pleasure to hear from you. Thank you, Keith. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Thea. I'm John Fugel saying, keep it tuned to SiriusXM Progress. Peace. <laughs> 